for this morning. If you're visiting with us and you need a Bible, there are some lovely persons distributing Bibles this morning. Just raise your hand and we'd be happy to bring you one. And if you don't have one, we would love for this to be our gift to you. So if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a copy of this translation, the English Standard Version, uh, please just raise your hand, take that one, write your name in it, take it home, uh, make it a part of your daily life, read it and pray through it and listen to the Lord speak to you through it. And that's what we hope to have happen even now. The Lord, the living word, would speak to us through his written word. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are continuing a series that we've been doing in the book of Isaiah. So open your Bibles with us to Isaiah chapter 4. We're going to spend our time in verses 2 to 6. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. You know, beloved, sometimes in life, it seems like the rain won't stop. Seems like bad news follows bad news. Sometimes in life, it looks like we will suffer blow after blow with no breaks in between. I imagine that's how Job felt. Before one messenger could finish giving him bad news, another messenger arrived with even worse news. Job's suffering kind of made itself into a ladder down into the pit. I imagine Israel in the time of Isaiah might have felt something similar from Isaiah's ministry. The prophet kept warning them. It's a warning after warning, judgment after judgment. I'm sure there were those who refused to listen to Isaiah because they said, he too fire and brimstone for me. And I'm sure there were some who listened, but only walked away, weighed down with the message. As if a a giant stack of lumber had fallen on their backs. You know, bad news will do that to you. It'll weigh you down. But sometimes, when life forms a gang to beat up on us, there's a break in the beating. There's a pause. The storm stops, the the clouds clear, and for a while, light pierces through. That's what we have in our text this morning. Light. The clouds of judgment pull back, and the light of glory and grace shine forward. We have a break in Isaiah's prophecies of judgment against Judah and Jerusalem and in that break comes hope. Direction setting hope. Look at Isaiah chapter 4 verses 2 to 6. Main thought this morning if you're looking for the sermon in one point you might put it this way. Even during the worst of God's judgments God himself is still our best hope. Even in the worst of God's judgment, God himself is still our best hope. And in this passage of hope, God is promising to deliver Israel from himself, from his judgment, and to deliver them into his salvation. And that promise takes the form of three things. A redeemer, verse 2. A restoration, verses 3 to 5, and a refuge, verse 6. 
a redeemer, a restoration, a refuge. It's what we have even in our worst suffering. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and a shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let's see here in verse 2, this Redeemer. Isaiah says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. This is another reference here that Isaiah uses to that day. The prophet is looking not at his day, but down to a future day. That day, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 2, Isaiah describes as the latter days, the last days. It's the the same days, the, the same period of time where the Lord plans to judge Israel for their pride, Isaiah 2, verse 12. It's the same day in Isaiah 2, verses 20 and 21, when all humanity will throw away their idols and hide from God in caves. It's the same day as we saw last week, chapter 3, verses 18 to 24 where the Lord will take away his gifts from his bride. But here's the remarkable thing, beloved. In the same day that God appoints judgment against Israel, he also appoints a redeemer for them. When the skies are dark with judgment, Israel here is being told to look for the glimmer of light. Notice three things in verse 2. There is a branch, There is fruit, and there are survivors. The the branch refers to the coming Redeemer. The, The fruit refers to the life of the saints. The survivors refer to those who have genuine faith in God and escape his wrath. It's not easy to tell from this text that the branch is the redeemer, but that's an image that that God's people, God's prophets, use quite frequently in the Old Testament. You know what a branch is? It's it's a limb, a a stick that grows up out of the, the stump or the trunk or off a, off a plant. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5, you can turn there with me. Isaiah talks more about this branch. We begin to see him in clearer color and, and focus. Isaiah 11, verse 1, Isaiah prophesies again, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. See, the first thing we see here is that this branch is a man. It's said here that he is from the stump of Jesse. This branch is a family tree. Jesse, the father of David, King David, the greatest king of Israel. And his branch, notice, his his entire life and ministry will be owned by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit shall rest upon him, and he shall do all these things in the counsel and might and wisdom and understanding of the Spirit of God. And he shall reign righteously. He shall judge with equity. So Israel is being taught to look beyond their time to a time when the branch of the Lord comes into the world. As I said, this this imagery is used a lot in the Old Testament. So Jeremiah, a prophet preaching about the same time as Isaiah, Jeremiah picks up, picks up, uh, or preaching a similar message as Isaiah, picks up this same imagery. So keep your finger in Isaiah, turn to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 18. So we can see more of the, the profile of this branch. Jeremiah writes there in verse 14, Behold, the days are coming. It's a future day, declares the Lord. The Lord is speaking now. When I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in, those, in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever. You see how the family tree grows? We started with Jesse. Now Jesse's son, David, and now a branch that springs up from David, who will sit on David's throne forever, who will fulfill the Levitical priesthood forever, so that there will never be a day where God's people don't have a king and a priest ministering before God forever. God has made a promise to Israel and a promise to the house of Judah. There will be a Messiah. There will be a Savior who will rescue them. And this branch will also be their righteousness. You see there, he's called the Lord our righteousness. The branch provides everything they need for redemption. A king to rule them. A priest to sacrifice for them. A prophet to bring them the very words of God. And Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Who is this branch? The branch, the fruit, and the redeemer. All those images, they come together most clearly in John chapter 15. So have you turn one more time to John chapter 15, the New Testament, verses 1 to 8. 
There the Lord Jesus is speaking and he reaches back for this same agricultural metaphor in definition of his own person and his own ministry. John chapter 15 verse 1, Jesus says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." It's as though Jesus is reading Isaiah 4 verse 2 and expounding that text in terms of his own life and ministry. That he is not just a branch as if one among many. He's the branch that is in fact the whole of the vine. And and the, the key thing is not only that we recognize that he's the branch, that he's the Lord, our righteousness, but the key thing is that we like smaller branches abide in him. That we live in him and he in us. That his word lives in us and we abide by his word. For in that way, the the fruit that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 4 verse 2, which which brings such honor and pride and and appropriate pride to Israel, that fruit is produced in our lives through our union with Christ. We are being joined together with him like branch to, to vine and the sap of his life flowing through us producing bloom and bud, flower and fruit. Isaiah is looking through the cards of time, seeing this Redeemer who will gather Israel and gather all God's people from every nation and make of them this blooming, flourishing, flowering plant, which Isaiah says, and Jesus agrees in John 15, 8, brings glory to the Father is glorious and beautiful. The branch is Jesus. Jesus, if we believe in him, is our righteousness. And through faith in him, all that Jesus has done to remove our sins and all that Jesus has done to provide our righteousness becomes ours. And we become his. And united together bear fruit. Our day is the day Isaiah saw when the gospel would come into the world and the church would be born and spread like a vine. Hope comes from seeing and recognizing this Redeemer. But it's one thing to see the Redeemer. It's another thing to experience the Redeemer. It's another thing to experience the restoration that the Redeemer brings. And so if you go back to Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3, Isaiah there begins to tell us about this, this restoration, the things that, 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 that the Lord will give back to Zion in that day. Verse 2 ends with a reference to the survivors of Israel. 
verse 3, defines these survivors as he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem. In other words, these survivors are, are the people the Old Testament refers to as the remnant, the ones who remain, the, the ones who are left over from God's judgment. The remnant are the true people of God who keep covenant with him, who believe in him, who have faith in him. And with this remnant now, not with all of Israel, but with this remnant defined by faith, God performs a marvelous restoration. He restores or returns three things. First, God restores their reputation. See it there in verse 3? Or, or remember, remember, remember what their, their reputation had become. Look back in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14. There Isaiah writes these words, uh, God speaking through the prophet, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, Children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That's what their reputation had become. Remember Isaiah chapter 1 verse 21 where, where Isaiah laments there, how the faithful city has become whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. But in this day that Isaiah foresees when the clouds break and he, he gets a vision of that day and, and, that, and that hope that he sees in that day, notice what their reputation becomes in Isaiah chapter 4 verse 3. They will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. To be holy is to be set apart for God and to share in God's character, in his moral goodness and purity and righteousness and love. And it will be holy because they will be, it will be seen that they are truly saved. And in several places in the Old Testament and, and even in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, that, that image of the books is, is a reference to God writing in the books the names of those who are his. The book of life here is, is open in Isaiah's vision. And everyone who's written in that book, whose names are recorded in the annals of salvation, they are going to be holy. Now that's good news, beloved. That's good news for us in our struggle with sin. That's good news with us in our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's good news in the face of all of our corruption and weakness and inability and inconsistency and indifference. And God has so began a work in us that he promises he's going to carry it on until completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That we're going to see Christ and seeing him, we're going to be like him. And even though we struggle with impurities now, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. And the reputation of all God's people will be holy unto the Lord. Holiness will be our, our calling God. Well, did the songwriter say, ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. God's going to restore the reputation of his people for holiness. But notice now, secondly, God's going to restore their religion. The people will become holy, verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. When Isaiah is prophesying, Israel right then is carried away with idols. 
Remember Isaiah 2, verse 8. The prophet writes there, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. And as a consequence, they they have made a mockery of true worship. So God rebukes them. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Imagine God saying this to his people. When you come to appear before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. They insulted God with their worship. And they polluted themselves before God. Isaiah 1 verse 22. Your silver has become dross. Your best best wine mixed with water. Here's the thing, beloved. We cannot fix false worship with that much impurity just because we decide to. A people that corrupt usually loves their corruption. Don't give it up voluntarily or as a matter of reading self-help books. So if true worship is to be restored, God must be the one who does it. So notice in verse 4 who the actor is. In Isaiah 4 verse 4, the Lord shall have washed away filth and cleansed the bloodstains. The, the Lord must do the work. The word for filth there might be translated vomit. It's pointing to their inner corruption and, and sickness. Out of the abundance of the heart come these corruptions. The bloodstains refer to the, the sort of things on the outside, their, their behaviors and their, their deeds, both inside and outside. The Lord here washes and cleanses them. He does it, notice, by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning. And sometimes some brands of Christians get carried away with spirits. It's a spirit of everything. Well, you got that spirit of criticism. <laughs> it's like a spirit of jealousy that come over you, you know. And so, but here, God's own spirit comes in judgment and fire. It's going to get hot before it gets holy. The prophet Malachi helps us to understand this, what Isaiah means here. So keep your finger in Isaiah. I should have told you this is going to be Bible study. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It's marvelous how to, to see how these prophets in different situations and times were seeing together what God would do. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the, the prophet writes there, Behold, I send my messenger And he will prepare the way before me, referring to John the Baptist as a forerunner of Jesus Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's 
soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in the righteousness, in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old, as in the former years, verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. See, once again, we see that God brings both judgment and purification at the same time. For those who are being saved, the Lord will be a purifying fire. For those who disobey the gospel, the Lord's coming will mean a fiery judgment. God removes the wicked from among his people and removes the wickedness that is in his people and restores true worship to his name. This is what John the Baptist preached. This text in Malachi, verse 1, foreshadows the coming of John. And it's not surprising then that when John steps on the scene, he comes preaching this very message. And so John, or Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, this is what we hear from John the Baptist. I baptize you with what? Water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Two things happening at once. The Lord is taking the fork and tossing the wheat into the air. The chaff will be floating and gathered away. The wheat will be gathered into the barn and the chaff will be burned. Both judgment and rescue in the same Messiah. And this is what Jesus says about this, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16 verses 8 to 10. Jesus says there, and when he comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. This, it seems to me, is the, is the main ministry of the Holy Spirit in our age. We, we get so fascinated with discussions about the gifts of the Spirit, but the bread and butter, meat and potatoes work of the Holy Spirit might be summed up right here in John in two things. Purify the church and convict the world. That's how God continues this cleansing and washing by His Spirit prophesied in Isaiah. This burning and judging by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in the church to purify us. He refines us like fire. That's the right reaction. Thank you, Lord. He melts away the dross so that the gold and the silver shines brightly. And the question for the church is, do we welcome this ministry of the Spirit or do we resist it? Do we ever plead for the Spirit's cleansing fire or do we run from it afraid? 
Do we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can be on fire for the Lord, but never be touched by the cleansing fire of the Holy Spirit? If we pray, God, have your way with us, we must mean, Lord, burn away by your Spirit all that displeases you. All the things I love, all the things I'm attached to, all the things that I get excited about that are not pleasing in your sight, that are a distraction from your will and your way, that may even dishonor your name. Lord, Holy Spirit, come down in fire, burn away it all. Remove the draws, take away the pollutants, rob me of my love affair with sin. If we ever pray that we wish to please you, Lord, We must be including in that prayer some sense of, Lord, I need to be refined. I need to be washed. Cleanse me. Make me whole. Make me clean. For your glory. The Spirit of the Lord is here to do that. Not just to purify the church, but to convict the world. That means the the Holy Spirit brings people to a point where they are convicted, where they are convinced that they are sinners who sin. He convinces them that they are not righteous before God, that they are wrong before God. And and the Holy Spirit convinces people that they are in their wrongness and, and in their guilt, they are deserving of God's judgment as sinners. And they are principally deserving of that judgment because they have not received Jesus as Lord. They have not acknowledged him to be God and ruler and captain and savior of their life. They have rejected him to that point. And the spirit takes a giant finger and puts it in the chest. It's a loving finger. It's a gentle finger, but it's a strong finger. And conviction is the result a sense of guilt and wrong. And if you have become convinced of those things, then beloved, God the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. You are having a divine encounter with God. No, they're not harps and the sky's not rolling back. Something more important is happening. God has placed his hand on your soul. And he is awakening you to a deep and profound spiritual reality that you are not right with him and you are in trouble with him. The feeling of guilt is not to be handled by going to try and find some self-esteem. The feeling of guilt is meant to be handled by confessing it and repenting of it by acknowledging to God I hear you I am guilty and I deserve judgment and apart from Jesus I deserve hell that's conviction but it's also good news the purpose of conviction is to lead you to repentance which is what brings you back to God It's what brings you to forgiveness. This is what brings you to the awareness that Jesus is who he said he is and that you need him to be that for you. 
your righteousness and your sin bearer who removes your guilt and your stain, who washes you of all those things that make you dirty before God. And when you come to him, he will not reject you. He will in no wise cast you out. He won't hold up his hand or take some distance far off. He won't won't demand that you earn something from him. It is for this reason that he has come, that his spirit might convict you and that you might turn to him and he might receive you as his own. Do not fear conviction. Embrace it and respond to it biblically. Confess your sin. Turn away from your sin. And put all of your hope in Jesus to save you from your sin and to make you a new creation. It's for you to decide whether the burning will lead to your repentance and faith in Christ so that you may escape the final judgment of God or whether it will lead to your destruction in hell and a final unending fire from which there is no redemption. Choose Christ. Trust Him. That fire is but a moment, but then comes holiness and purity and love with the Savior. He restores His people, number three, to their relationship with Him. Remember the dramatic scene of Isaiah 3, verses 18 to 24, when When God stripped Zion of all the tokens of their marriage, bracelet, earrings, robes, and so on. And remember how Isaiah showed us a picture of of Israel being left bare there and without a husband. The covenant was broken and they were all alone. In verse 5, we get a picture of their remarriage now. God restores their broken relationship with him. So the text reads, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame, flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. The word choice in the imagery is really, it's really quite brilliant. It's beautiful. Isaiah uses the word create there, the same word used in Genesis for the creation of the universe. In the last days, God powerfully recreates his people. Then you get the image of the cloud by day and the fire by night. You know your Bibles, you know this is the the imagery of the Exodus. When God led Moses and the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage by by cloud and by fire, the, the same God who delivered and led the Israelites back then will deliver and guide his people in the last day, and his presence will always be with him. Then Isaiah says, For all the glory there will be a canopy. The word canopy is the same word used for a wedding tent. In ancient Israel, when a husband took a bride, he would spread his canopy or his tent and bring his bride into the tent for the for the consummation of their relationship and their their vows. Their private moment here, referred to as the glory, will be shared only between the two of them beneath the canopy of their love. God promises not only to recreate them and to lead them, but also to renew their marriage, to spread a wedding canopy over them, to receive them to himself. 
and in that relationship to restore the, the fullness of what was lost. This is what happens in the gospel. First, we are made new creations. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, God has took a people who were no people and made them now a people for himself. Then we are made Christ's disciples. We, we follow him wherever he leads. And as we follow Jesus, we have this promise from Hebrews 13, 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Or we have the words that end Matthew's Gospels, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And lo, if you got the King James or behold, <laughs> I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Not by fire and by cloud, but by the Holy Spirit who lives in us as his temple. And we have become the bride of Christ who, who awaits the consummation with our Lord. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus restores all that was broken in the relationship between man and God. And all those who have faith in Christ live in the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. These are the last days and Jesus is the best hope. Which brings us to the third thing we want to see in Isaiah's text. We see a redeemer. We see a restoration. And now we see a refuge. Verse 6. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge, a shelter from the storm and rain. We hear so much today about safe places. Some people express a need for a safe place to deal with certain things. I've sometimes seen people on the other end mock the idea of a safe place. Interestingly, though, on the next day on Twitter, they're complaining that it's not safe for them. <laughs> I don't know what you think about all of that. But there's one thing I do know. To say God is our refuge is to say that God himself is our safe place. If God is your shelter, if God is your fortress, if God is your bulwark or your shield or your strong tower, then your refuge is God, and you have the very safest place in all the universe. Verse 6 says, it doesn't matter whether it's daytime or nighttime. God is our refuge. It doesn't matter whether the threat is the heat of the day or the fierce storm and rains that come by night. God is our refuge. In other words, in every circumstance and every trial, at all times, God will be for us our strong tower and our hiding place. Listen, in all our battles and trials and circumstances, we don't hide behind the skirts of mom or the pants leg of dad. We don't find our shelter in university campuses or in military powers. 
We don't find our shelter in, in, in ADT to protect our home or, or build a panic room in the basement. We don't resort to sec- secular philosophy to find a safe space. And, and we don't turn to the fortune tellers of our day. We don't try to build a wall around ourselves with public policy or cultural practice. We, 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 don't, we don't try to escape with alcohol or drugs or violence or fantasy. All of those things fail us. God never fails. When God is your wall, beloved, there's nobody who can break through or climb over. Do you understand? When God is your hiding place, there's no one who can search him out or flush you out. When God is your shelter, there's nothing that can break in or tear down. When God is your protection, there's nobody that can beat him or turn him against you. When God is your shade, ain't no heat that can scorch you. When God is your refuge, you'll find that God is enough. In the old covenant with Israel, God was present with his people in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. But the average person couldn't go inside where his glory was, only the priests. But in a new covenant, which God makes with all who believe in Jesus Christ, we are now a kingdom of priests who may go into the presence of God at any time. We, we find that God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. He is a strong tower. The, the righteous run into him and they are safe. And so the question comes, becomes, beloved, who or what is your refuge? Who or what is my refuge? Where do you try to hide when things get hard? Where do you run? To whom do you run? What shelter do you seek? Oh, beloved, consider how much Isaiah only looked forward to, but that we actually have. We have received the branch who is Jesus and been grafted into him. We have received restoration in Jesus Christ and and had our our, our souls washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And and we now have God as our, our waiting and never failing refuge. Beloved, do you run to him in your troubles? Do you run to him in your pain? Do you run to God in your confusion? Do you you run to him in your weakness, beloved? Do you run to him when your parents fail you? Do you run to him when your spouse turns away? Are you running to God as your refuge when your government fails you? you, Are you running to God when you're in fear? When, when, you, when you feel anger, is God your refuge? Are you taking refuge in God when anxiety threatens to overwhelm you? Are you running to God in the midst of spiritual warfare when the demons rile and shake their face against you? What, what about when you're battling your sin? Is God your secret hiding place and your fortress and your bulwark against the world? And, and, and what about when all your strength is gone and you don't even know how to pray? Where do you hide? Where do you rest? Where do you run? Is God your fortress? Because that's who he offers himself to us as. Our refuge. If you take one application from this sermon today, let it be this. God, through Jesus Christ, has done everything to bring us back to him. Now it's for us to run to him with everything that ever took us away. Christ has become your protection, beloved. 
And yea, though you hear the thundering warnings of judgment and the ominous clouds gather signaling trouble, and though you expect the torrential rain to fall and wash all away, stand beneath the shelter and the refuge which is Christ. If you are his, his banner over you is love. He has spread his canopy over you as his bride. And you will never be taken away from him. Run to him. Hide in him. He is your refuge. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you that you offer yourself for our protection. Shielding us from the judgment to come through the blood of your Son. Protecting us from the fiery darts of the evil one. As we hold up the shield of faith and look to Jesus. Keeping us, oh Lord, from the the coming fury and the temptation of this world making us holy as you are holy. Oh, Father, what a marvelous thing it is that we, weak and feeble, often confused, very often strained, hearts full of trouble, minds distracted. What an awesome thing it is that you are our shelter and our refuge. We come into you and we are safe. Oh, Father, help us to hide in you. Help us, O oh Lord, to seek your cover. Help us to come to you like people who have learned something about grace. And in your kindness, in your grace, you will not crush us. You will not sniff out our smoking candle but you will be gentle and you will give us rest. Indeed, you will shelter us, shelter us from all the storm. Even today, there are folks who are thinking of going someplace else to look for someone else to hide them. Oh God, be merciful. Turn their eyes away from lesser saviors and let them behold Jesus with clear sight and a soft heart, let them see Jesus, the righteous branch who rules over all things, who brings justice to the poor and equity to the oppressed, who will not crush them, but only love them. Let them come to Jesus, the rock, and let them be saved. And let us, let us each day hide, O oh Lord, in the deep wells of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.